Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes, bits, sketches, scenes, or segments, and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. Sometimes in comedy, it's about the jokes you don't tell. This was the case with this week's guest, Hassan Minhaj, when he was putting together a recent episode of his show, Patriot Act. While an episode of the show usually takes weeks, if not months, of research, in late May, after the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, Hassan felt he couldn't wait. He needed to address it right away. The result was entitled, We Cannot Stay Silent About George Floyd, a a powerful digital exclusive released on Wednesday, June 3rd. It would eventually be uploaded on Netflix to be watched like a regular episode. Though there is comedy throughout the 12-minute address, often Hassan forgoes laughs to convey the gravity of his words. I should say, Patriot Act is the most visual of late-night shows. Pre-pandemic, his set looked like the cockpit of a spaceship, But during lockdown, they've shot the show on green screen, so it's like Hassan lives inside the world of his graphics. You'll be able to follow with just the audio, but you need to know the piece opens with a crop photo of just Derek Chauvin as he's kneeling on George Floyd's neck, and that the news clips he throws to at the beginning are of Janine Pirro, Rush Limbaugh, and yup, Logan Paul. One more thing, in the interview, Hassan mentions someone named Bina and someone named Prashant. Bina is his wife, and Prashant is the co-creator and executive producer of Patriot Act. So, without further ado, here is Hassan Minhaj. This photo has haunted America this past week. And as horrific as it is, it is all too familiar. Another black person dying at the hands of the police, screaming, I can't breathe. But this time we cannot stay silent especially the Asian community, because the murder of George Floyd was so heinous, even these people are speaking out. This man who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd does not deserve to be free in this country. What happened to George Floyd sickened me, and I'm not the only American who feels this way. It is not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. And for those who do not think white privilege exists, you are fucking blind. This is fucking incredible. It only took Logan Paul seeing two dead bodies on camera to reflect on his privilege. We must hold our authorities accountable. Police officers, 
politicians, policymakers. As Killer Mike said, bully the politicians at the voting booth. Believe it or not, this is progress. But Logan, if you're gonna talk seriously about racial injustice, fucking move Squirtle! He's like, we have to bully the politicians. We have to prosecute these murderers. We gotta catch them all. Dude, we're having a serious discussion and you got fucking tchotchkes on the table. Get the beanie babies out of here, Logan. Protests have erupted across the country. It is a mass mobilization unlike anything I have ever seen before. And a lot of cops have done nothing but make a heartbreaking situation worse. You've seen the videos on Twitter showing cops punching protesters, arresting people for no reason, tear gassing bystanders, and all this bullshit opened the floodgates to bizarre shit. Fucking Batman showed up, property was destroyed, and white teenage angst hit an all-time high. For the first time ever, white teens have gotten what they have always wanted, purpose. Dylan and Cody are going full-on Mad Max cosplay. Caucasians are fucking karate-kicking police cars like their parents just got divorced. And the problem is, the conversation has quickly turned from police brutality to this. The rape of America is happening, and it's happening right before our eyes, and it has nothing to do with the death of that poor man. These wanton acts of violence are part of a coordinated effort to eventually overthrow the United States government. The worst people in our society have taken control. I couldn't agree more, Tucker. The worst people in society have taken control. Looting has broken out all over the country. It has gotten so bad. Even my community is speaking out, but let's be real. It's probably because it affects the bottom line. Abdul Saleh has never seen anything like it in his 20 years in business. Stuff that wasn't theirs that looters stole early Saturday evening. What hurts Saleh the most is he knows many of the looters. And I got no problem with nobody. That's awful, but come on, 25 bucks for Jays? That jump man's got a gut like Kim Jong-un. So who's looting who, Saleh? Clearly, there are a lot of people who own small businesses and are feeling the pain. Why are they doing this? What does this solve? And I understand that frustration, especially when you think about the countries that we come from, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Libya, Palestine, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Vietnam, Cambodia, China, Japan, Laos, the Philippines. Depending on when you immigrated, I know this, you came to this country for order and stability. We don't want it to be as fucked up as back home. That's why we're all in our living rooms and we're like, why can't they just follow the laws? But imagine if you lived in a country where the color of your skin got you killed for driving, jogging, sleeping, yelling, parking, babysitting, sitting in a van, selling CDs, selling cigarettes, opening the door, walking at night, wearing a hoodie at night, holding a toy gun, lying on the ground, being homeless, being in a dark stairwell, holding a cell phone, having a broken taillight, exercising horses, having a bottle of pills, shopping at Walmart, holding a BB gun at Walmart, holding a phone in your own backyard, eating ice cream in your own house, and shopping. You would say that is a lawless country. Who the fuck? is running the show. Al-Shabaab, by the way, hands down, funniest sounding terrorist organization. Sounds like you're about to order falafel, not carry AKs in the back of a Toyota. So hold on, why are we shocked 
that people are asking for revolutionary change. Dude, we support revolutions overseas. The Intifada, Hong Kong, Arab Spring, Myanmar, CAA, NRC protests, Tiananmen Square, fucking throwing stones at tanks? That is our shit. And we can't empathize with the protesters? We can't seem to fathom the same knee of oppression that kills in Gaza could be the same knee of oppression that killed George Floyd? Look, I can't speak to what it's like to be black, but I know how we talk about black people. And it is fucked up because it is a microcosm of America. Asians, we love seeing black excellence. Barack, Michelle, Jay, Beyonce, give me the Travis Scott fours. We spent the last five weeks praying at the altar of Michael Jordan. How could we be afraid? We love black America. Yeah, on screen, in our living rooms. But if a black man walks into your living room or wants to date, God forbid, marry your daughter, you call the cops. Dude, do you know what we call black people? We call them kala. It means black, not in a good way. If someone in your family is dark-skinned, we clown them. We call them kalu. Look at kalu. Our Bollywood stars do skin-whitening commercials so we don't look black. Thank you, Britain. It is bad to be black in Desi culture, even though we all wish we were black. You don't think that affects how we view black people? 20% of Muslims in America are black. We don't even like praying at the same mosques. If they show up at the masjid, we're like, yo, is Farrakhan here? That is the great hypocrisy. We love seeing how high a black person can ascend in America, but we have done nothing to raise the floor. That is what these protests are about. And the worst part is, we're in this country because of protest, because of the civil rights movement. The only reason so many of us are here is because of the Immigration Act of 65. That law rode the wave of the Civil Rights Act of 64. Think of the chess moves. Martin gets Lyndon B. Johnson to sign that sheet of paper, and little do we know, MLK CC'd us on that email of progress. Because of that one signature, Ummi and Abu were able to move to Edison, Fremont, Plano, Naperville, Irvine, Marietta, Dearborn, Twin Cities, Schaumburg, Sugarland, Long Beach, Dallas, Sunnyvale, Cupertino. You know, the factories that make us. Also that you could eat fucking Bandukan instead of being in Karachi. But hey, it's not our fight, right? This is a black-white issue. America's story didn't start when we got here. When you became an American citizen, you don't just get to own the country's excellence. You have to own its failures. That is the deal. That's why I can't get this photo out of my head. Because it's cropped wrong. Zoom out. Who's in this photo? The officer who's blocking people off? He's Hmong American. He's my age. He's 34. The guy who owns the store. Did you know this? He's Arab American. His clerk called the cops on Floyd. That is America. A black man was murdered in cold blood and we were on the fucking sidelines watching. I'm not saying we were the ones who killed George Floyd, but we have to be the ones who pull that cop off his neck. We think we're not a part of the story, but we're at the scene of the crime. That's why the full picture matters. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a system. Fine, Hassan, what do you want us to do?
how do you want us to support black America? I did the little black Instagram square. I had the tough conversation with my family. Fuck that. This fake woke shit we do on IG dies in a week. We can't just knock out racism. We have to help win this thing on the cards. We have to donate our money and time to black organizations, to all the doctors. Offer free healthcare to protesters, tech people. Help black businesses get online. You work in IT, set up a router. You pass the bar, good, Ami and Abu are proud. Work pro bono for protesters, Pfizer, doesn't need any more billables. Everything helps. Be like Rahul. He let protesters hide from police in his home. You don't even need a degree to do this. You just need a Sharpie. Because we have got to get our civics, law school nerd shit on right now. Two things, legislating and voting. That changes history and it scales. These are a few things we all got to get behind. And this applies to everyone. Number one end qualified immunity. It protects cops from lawsuits and holds them to a different set of standards than the rest of us. There's a bill in Congress right now. Make sure it gets traction. Harass your member of Congress. Call the landline. If you can make bots for a Jordan drop, make bots that will call your member of Congress. Next, demilitarize the police. We saw this two months ago. Doctors are waddling around in garbage bags, but now our cops are LARPing like Master Chief and Halo? No. Three, this is very important. Vote out corrupt local officials because this buddy-buddy bullshit between prosecutors, DAs, and the cops is the reason that police officers never serve time. You have to Google when the election is, vote locally, and get new officials into the system. That's on all of us. Number four, this isn't for everyone. This is for Keith Ellison. Keith, I know you are watching. You were the attorney general in Minnesota and you have this case now. Come on, man, how many Muslim fundraisers have you and I gone to where we pray for the community? We gotta make dua. We cannot just make dua. You need to charge and prosecute all four officers as hard as you possibly can. They have got to go to prison. We can't let this moment slip away. Millions of people around the world have taken to the street to afford us this moment. Set the precedent so the next time a cop has his knee on a black man's neck, he will see it for what it is. Murder. I am here with Hassan Minhaj. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, man. So uh, before we get into this episode, I want to back up a little bit. So February 27th, you announced Patriot Act is coming back for its sixth season on March 29th. And in the coming weeks, the pandemic ramped up in this country and we all went on lockdown. Uh, by March 23rd, you announced production will be delayed. So then May 17th, the show finally comes back. I want to discuss, <laughs> you know, I want to discuss the practical and the sort of philosophical conversations you and your staff had between the postponing and launch. Can you first yeah. talk about the evolution of how you decided to actually make the show and how you'd go about shooting the show? Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> thank you for providing the timeline, uh, sure. even though it all just kind of blends together. But it, it it is kind of important. Yeah, we were we were in our studio. We were getting ready for our sixth cycle. We were actually pre-shooting some segments for some episodes. So we were in the studio in front of a live studio audience. And then right around... Um, 
March, things started getting really crazy, uh, especially in Manhattan. And Mm -hmm. a couple cases had broken out at CBS across the street, right next door at 60 Minutes. And just for the safety of the staff and everybody that works on the show, we decided to halt production. Um, And then also, you know, personally, my son was just born. So I had a newborn at home. Things were all sorts of crazy. I had a two-year-old, a newborn. Um, So what we thought was going to be, hey, this is going to be a 10-day delay or like maybe like a month delay turned into, no, like this is going to be TBD for a very long time. And so as everybody on staff kind of sheltered away, we had to figure out, all right, what's the next move? You know, do we all leave the studio and just wait this thing out? And when we can all return back to a studio with the studio audience, do we re-engage? And as we just kind of started doing the Vegas odds of it, I'm like, look, that could be in 2021. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And then, you know, the big thing for me was I was, I was like, can I do this this show from, like, my living room? So much of the show is me showing things, graphs, pull quotes, tears, these large, you know, graphic animation fireworks that Mm -hmm. kind of play along with what i'm saying i can't really do what jimmy's doing or what even trevor's doing where it's not as simple as an ots where it's just an over-the-shoulder graphic and and i can just kind of keep going directly to my camera um so we kind of had to go back to the drawing board and it took us a little bit of time to figure out okay what does this version of the show look like And then, you know, we started thinking, well, why don't we do green screen? Like everybody's shooting practically. They're shooting practically, you know, Bill Maher's shooting practically outside in his backyard or Ellen's shooting inside, Trevor's shooting from his living room. But what if we were to have a green screen and still apply a lot of the graphics that we had already Mm -hmm. created for the episodes, but just kind of re-render them for a straight-to-camera visual experience usually we we have five angles that we cut through in the show that give it that live stand-up taping feel mm-hmm. we don't have that in this scenario but we have like a, a tight and a wide on green screen but we could still have the graphics feel immersive and so we had to kind of add a vfx house as well that would you know make sure all <laughs> like that, yeah. that i'm keyed out properly yeah because it's not just like oh cool you're doing a zoom background it's like no no no, no. i move my hands a, a shit ton yeah. and there's a lot of stuff that's happening around me. And the last thing you want is like my ear to be cut off by like, you know, some sort of data viz. Um, so a- as we were figuring out how you're going to make it, what were the conversations like about how the show might shift philosophically to sort of respond to this moment? You know, what changes did you decide to make? Yeah, totally. I mean, there was a couple stories that just had to be killed and a couple stories that we had been tracking for a long time that got moved up in terms of urgency. And that's an interesting thing about the medium, right? Like, I'll give you an example. An episode that we did nine months ago called The Broken Policing System was something that was considered to be, well, this is a relatively divisive topic. Are that many people thinking and talking about policing? And now, like, that episode has gotten an additional boost of viewership. Mm-hmm. People are reposting it. People are are talking about the qualified immunity stuff that we talk about in that, you know, warrior training, all of these things that we felt like we had to inform the general public about. Now people are like, no, 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 I'm aware of all of these things. It's crazy that you guys, you know, kind of condensed that down into one. Conversely, with the episodes that we were doing this time, rent and evictions was something that we were thinking about for a long time. And that's what we ended up opening cycle six with. But we moved that up to open the cycle with because by the time we got back on the air and we had kind of developed a little proof of concept and worked on it with Netflix, 
we had moved past the public health crisis. Like we all know, like wash your hands for 20 seconds, mm-hmm. wear a mask, like that whole thing, sing happy birthday twice. Like we all knew that song and dance, right? Now we were entering what was the economic fallout. You know, unemployment was hitting 30 plus million. Now it's at 40 million approximately. So the thing that I wanted to focus on is like, what are those sort of day-to-day things that are affecting people's lives that they're thinking about right now? as we're all living through quarantine. And so Retin Evictions was one. The episode that we did last week, which is, uh, is college still worth it? There's so many students that had to leave college early or that are about to go to college that are like, wait a second, it's just a glorified masterclass at this point. I don't know if I should even go, right? Um, Even weed, like weed became one of the first essential businesses that kind of came back in phase one for certain states. But Race intrinsically was tied with weed in a very interesting and unique way. And while we're talking about Black America and the way Black America has been treated, I really thought weed and the the discussion of weed and who gets access to it, especially right now, was a very interesting topic given everything that's going on right now. And also, uh, weed use is up. So I'm like, hey, (laughs) we should do a weed episode. You know, your show was allowed to be, you know, less topical in a lot of ways to the Mm -hmm. other shows. You try to root in something happening now, but you wanted it to both be timely and sort of not timely. Did you feel like you should maybe need to ramp up the timeliness a little bit more because how sort of ever present this the the pandemic everything feels? Yeah, so I think, you know, generally on these shows, you'll have in an act one what's called a tots, top of the show. And whether it's Trevor or Oliver or even Mark, they'll, they'll take three to five minutes to just kind of wax on what's happening in the current environment. A lot of times what we're doing is we do that too. We'll take a couple minutes to back into that first thoughts package that we'll throw to. We'll back into, hey, a lot of people are talking about this and trust me, they are. And then I'll throw mm-hmm. and you'll clearly see through the first clip package of like, oh, there's a collection of kind of news anchors and people in the media talking about this thing, which then justify me getting to my thesis statement, which it right around minute five or seven, right? That's mm-hmm. why tonight I want to talk about if college is, is worth it or yeah. not. Or that's why tonight, you know, that sort of thing. But there was something else happened too, where there were certain things that were moving so quickly. I, I, I also wanted to kind of talk about things in real time a little bit. Where we, I don't get the space to do that on the show. So we started putting out digital exclusives. You know, I, I remember when things started opening up again um, and, and governors were all over the place. Some states were just fully on opening up. Some were still in lockdown. Yeah, you know, the Michigan protesters showing up. I had this take that I was just sitting on, which was just a joke run, where I was like, look, man, like America doesn't need a president. We need a commissioner. Mm-hmm. We need like Adam Silver. Like he's yeah. He has managed 30 plus NBA teams better than Donald Trump has managed 50 states. And that to me would have been an act one chat that I would have done on The Daily Show about a three to five minute piece. Or it would have been Trevor would have blown it out or John could have blown it out into a seven minute act one. So I, I started talking with our graphics team. I said, what if we also in the middle of our kind of Sunday drop, we do these digital pieces where it's it's a little bit less heavy on the research books and the graphs and the data viz and the huge animations and more about perspective POV. Mm-hmm. I go right to camera and we we can still show clips. We can still still show stuff through archival, but it's more of Hassan's just take and opinion yeah. on that. Um, and so, and it can be built around one sort of comedy premise. And that's where, you know, that digital piece came out where, you know, America needs a commissioner. And then our George Floyd piece, that also came out in the middle of the week where I just felt like we need to address it on the show. Yeah. So, 
so, talking about it. So I've, I've heard you talk about, say, you know, a topic on the show will typically be researched and worked on for, you know, at least a month, but up to six months for the sort of more complicated issues. So to sort of set the timeline on Monday, May 25th, George Floyd is murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. In the coming days, the footage started coming out and protests erupted first in Minneapolis and then the rest of the country and then the rest of the world. Uh, I'll add for context, I believe you shoot the show on Wednesdays. Um, can yeah. you walk me through sort of first hearing the news, seeing the video, seeing the protests, and then turn deciding you want to talk about it on the show? You know, what conversations did you have with yourself, your staff, your family a- and friends? Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, the tw- on the 25th, um, George Floyd was murdered. That's correct. Right, Jesse? Yeah. 25th. Yeah. So in the coming days, the, the videos released. And protests erupt around the country. And I'll, I'll tell you the things, the order in which I saw things happen. And, and then there was a tipping point right around the, the second or third kind of domino where I was like, mm. no, I think I, we need to say something about this in a very meaningful way. And I think I have a way in that I think is particularly unique. The first was, which I could not believe, you know, I'm 34 years old. I could not believe this is the first time in my life that I saw unequivocal condemnation on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Like our footage producers will bring clips. I'm watching Janine Piero be like, we need to charge these cops with murder. Yeah. You know, these, this footage, like she's screaming it. You got the, you got that like Windows 95 American flag waving behind her, like that her, during her monologue. Could not believe what I was hearing. Rush Limbaugh being like, this is, this is horrendous. This is a murder. We need to charge these officers and they need to go to prison, period. Mm-hmm. I could not believe it. Right. And, um, that was the first. The second was the mass mobilization, like across the country. And again, I remember six years ago with Eric Garner, again, being in New York, working at The Daily Show. I saw the way John addressed it. I saw the protests. But I then started seeing protests and solidarity happening around the world. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of like a fucked up joke, but I, I saw like people putting up George Floyd murals in Syria and I'm like, they don't even have a fucking functioning government. And they're like, this is too far. This is inhumane. Yeah. What's happening? What's, what is going on in America? Yeah. You know what I mean? And by the way, they have a dictator that fucking gasses civilians. So it's like, even they're just like, hey, look, put this rubble together. We need to, we need to make a mural of George Floyd. I know yeah. that's such a dark thing, but I was like, something is happening around the world where we're all seeing like, it is unequivocally like unjust and people are rallying around this moment. The, th- the the third thing starts happening, which is the peaceful protests, which then open up into rioting, which then open up into looting. And I saw kind of the ripple effect, the downstream effect of what I call the WhatsApp thread. And mm-hmm. that's like friends and family around the country and around the world. And, you know, a lot of my family and a lot of the people that I know that I grew up with, we're all kind of first generation immigrants. So I, I know a lot of folks that own mom and pop stores uh, across the country, whether that's liquor stores, whether that's gas stations, whether that's restaurants, like, you know, kind of just first generation, we, ca- we came to the country in the 70s and the 80s, and, and we, we established these kind of small businesses to help our children survive. And I'm a, I'm a child, I'm a, a child of that generation. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing them on WhatsApp kind of posting. And these are those sort of like, behind the scenes whispers that nobody talks about in public. But it's like, hey, what's going on? Like, did Target really have to burn? 
And I remember like that very distinct moment where people are like, what is, what is rioting and looting going to get you? You know, and then I started to see the right-wing pundits also say that of like, congratulations, you have lost all footing for your cause. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't you just be peaceful? People would have listened. And I remember having a very tense conversation with a family friend of mine who was defending the, 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 the looting of Target. And I was like, trust me, uncle, Target will be okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they have insurance. But there was also a very important data point. And I said, look, notice how the day after, let's say Target lost all of its flat screens, the case was upped from a local DA to the attorney general, Keith Ellison. Mm-hmm. Like, Clearly, there is a cause and effect here where people are like, no, 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 we're not just going to have the same old buddy-buddy bullshit between the prosecutor, the DA's office, and the police department. That's over. We need to up the ante here. And it was the first time in my life I thought, hey, maybe this could be different than what we saw with Eric Garner, where, yes, the officer was charged, rah, 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 hey, look, the officer's charged, but then they're never sentenced and they never serve time in prison, right? And so I just felt like it was this really powerful moment where I kind of had an opportunity to kind of speak as a person who a lot of times in America, we think of the race dynamic being a black-white dichotomy. But there is a huge immigrant community, whether it's from the Latinx community or the Asian American community or the South Asian Middle Eastern community, where we are sometimes at the sideline of this race conversation, but we are intrinsically linked to it vis-a-vis civil rights legislation, right? And so a lot of my community, they don't get that. Like there's this kind of really ugly real talk conversation where they're just like, hey, we don't need to get involved in this fight. This has nothing to do with us. I don't carry, like, we don't carry your guilt, America. I don't owe you anything. Mm. And the reality is, is if you look at the Immigration Act of 1965, we actually do owe black America a lot. Because on the heels of the civil rights legislation that was that was passed in 64, that Immigration Act was passed in 65, which allowed my parents to come here in 1982, highly educated, skilled employ- uh, workers from Asia, right? And that was a, a monumental piece of legislation. Um, and so I kind of had to spell that out. And there was a moment where I was like, all right, look, we cannot just stand on the sidelines and we cannot just privately speak ill of a marginalized community that is really hurting right now. We got to stand with them because they they stood for us, you know? So you, you decide you, you want to talk about it and um, it would be for the, I guess, the June 5th episode. So essentially, but ultimately this is an incredibly condensed timeline. You know, quickly, w- what typically happens once you pick a topic in terms of how your research staff and your writing staff moves? And then what what is the sort of typical, what is the typical interplay of those groups? And then what happened in, in the case of this episode? So in in the case of this episode, <laughs> Prashant, who is our co-creator and showrunner, he's quarantined with my family. So we live together with the green screen. He lives <laughs> with me, my babies, my wife, and our green screen. And yeah, he just lives with us, right? Yeah. And so Prashant and I, you know, we've lived together the past couple months and I start riffing out the beats of it where mm-hmm. I kind of start spelling it out. What is this lawlessness? And I kind of played out all the devil's advocate arguments, right? And and then we started working backwards. And he's like, no, 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 there's a piece here. You know what I mean? Um, you know, why are these people disobeying the law? And then one of those, the first graphic takeover moments where 
I do this long list of how many Black Americans have innocently died at the at the hands of the state, and it's it's kind of this graphics takeover mm-hmm. where the where their faces animate over me, and I say, look, if if I told you those were the rules of a specific country, you would be like that country is lawless. Yeah, and and the joke TK that I had after that was just like, look, if there's any group of people that support revolutions, it's us. Like we're the ones that are like, fuck yeah, Arab Spring, hell yeah, the Intifada, hell like we pr- Tiananmen Square, never forget Taiwan, respect its autonomy. Like we are the ones that are just like, no, 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 push back against the man. And now we're like, hey, hey, hey listen to the rules. Like, come on, you can't play it, you can't have it both ways, right? Um, and so yeah, like there was just these certain moments that I felt like, okay, we have an interesting uh, argument here. When I kept when we wrote those things out. Then we started reaching out to like footage and archival mm-hmm. and footage gave us this really, really interesting, you know, perspective. It was the Google, like the New York Times had put out a video that kind of was the Google street view of the whole incident. And it's really powerful because you see Cup Foods and then we find out that the owner of Cup Foods is Arab American. His employee called the cops on George Floyd about the counterfeit $20 bill. The camera whips around and then you see one of the three police officers that's surrounding Chauvin. He's Hmong American. He's 34. He's my age. You know what I mean? And there was this moment where I was like, holy shit, we are literally at the scene of the crime. From the owner of the store to the police officer telling everybody to back up. Like, yeah, we may not have our foot on George Floyd's neck, but it's Mm -hmm. our job to pull his knee off his neck. You know? And so... There was just a couple moments where we were removed from that conversation by omission. The, 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 the issue is, is the photo is cropped wrong. Yeah. And that was the main point that I wanted to say there as we, as we kind of went to the, the tail end of the piece of like, no, no, the issue that I have with this photo is that it doesn't show the whole picture. And uh, we're omitted from it, even though we're at the scene of the crime. And so that kind of locked the whole piece together. So this seems particularly this was one that came from something personal and and ideas that you beat out um it just to get a sense like in general is when you have an episode are you sort of like what is your role as as, in terms of the construction of an episode typically and how do you you know work with a staff that includes writers but also includes researchers um you know and, and so just to get a sense of this seems like it was really unique because it was such a personal thing is 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 it is it that unique is that sort of how it works or you know how is a a writing staff engaged with these certain things are you saying like oh um you know we'll have this graphic and then a joke tk here and you get pitches so so can you walk me through sort of how you then work with a group of people to sort of flesh a thing out yeah it's almost like this you know depending on the story there's 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 these there's a certain amount of it's almost like if if you were to put together like a meal, there's just certain flavors that you can put into it. And some of it, you know, one of the flavors is just your own personal POV. This is how I feel. And there's somebody who's been, I think, doing a tremendous job about that right now, specifically with police brutality, Trevor Noah. I think Trevor has really, really like come into his own and he really shines when talking about, you know, protesting and uh, and race relations and 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 police relations vis-a-vis his experience growing up through apartheid South Africa, right? Yeah. 
there's certain topics that we hit where I have a, the, the driver that I have from my personal experience can carry a lot of it. And then we can back into more statistics and analysis. There's other pieces where it's like, holy shit, we have a killer piece of information here that we need to talk about. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that where, where just the, just the found footage that we found is so damning and convincing that oh, we need to back into this. So an example of that is the episode that we did a couple weeks ago about uh, coronavirus and supply mm. chains, specifically in regards to how many people working at meatpacking plants are now contracting COVID and dying. The piece of evidence that we found there, and, and this came from our archival and footage team, was Donald Trump signs this executive order, but in the executive order, it's the media reported that the executive order forced meatpacking plants to stay open. It didn't. The executive order just had meatpacking plants continue to honor government contracts. So this thing of misreporting potentially had a downstream effect of keeping meatpacking plants open and then causing this potential spike in COVID cases. Now, it's not a direct, you know, this correlation is causation, but it's a pretty damning piece of evidence of hey, MSNBC, CNN, all of the major outlets didn't actually read the executive order that was signed. And it was signed to just clear, you know, the meatpacking plants of liability. And they used the kind of media coverage to give them cover to stay open. So that was a media analysis piece. It's not about me. It's really like, let me play the tape for you. Let me show you the series of events that happens. What, play the C-SPAN footage. Look at what he's saying here. Look at the words that he's saying. Look at how many times he says liability. Now watch, just a few minutes later, all the cable news outlets pick it up. Look at what they end up saying. Bing, bing, bing. It was MSNBC, CNN, Fox, all of them. Now look at this graph. Meatpacking plants stay open. People come back. Now look at this fourth graph. Look, they've COVID cases have now spiked. So it's this kind of, we're putting together an analysis piece there. And that's an example of where I'm not in it as much. It's like, hey, we found this thing. Now we have to, now I have to storytell through SOTS and DataViz. There's other ones where it's just a, an interesting, like, um, it's a very interesting or unique world or philosophical question. Uh, we had been sitting on this one for a long time. This was last week's episode. Is college still worth it? Right. That was just a, a, an interesting topic that we had been just kicking around at the office. We had been researching. We had a research book on it. And now COVID kind of kicked it into high gear mm -hmm. because colleges were shut down. And now everybody's doing classes like via Zoom. And if colleges resume in the fall, it's basically going to be a glorified masterclass. So it's like, is this really worth it, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and, and those are kind of like the three primary buckets. Sometimes you get a little bit of everything. And those, those episodes, those things really sing. You have something where there's killer found footage that you found that you're bringing to light that's like, huh, wow, I can't believe they found that. Uh, an example of that is when our researchers found the, in our fast fashion episode, the Inditex book. They, they, they put out their annual report. It was all about kind of how green and how green friendly they are. We went through their book and sort of found how a lot of the data and stuff they were using was misleading. That, that, you know, that was a great piece, right? But then, other pieces also have that on top of a personal element. I'm like, hey, I'm really into fashion too. I, how do we how do we think about this, knowing that it is unequivocally fucked up, you know, in the in you know fucking up the environment and the world. And then the third is is that is this thing is this topic a really interesting world that people are thinking about and talking about right now? So the episodes that we've had that have popped kind of have all three of those. And 
our Floyd piece had a little bit of those things. It was topical. It was timely. I had a very clear take and a unique perspective on it through that footage that we had of, of the kind of Google Maps. Mm-hmm. We kind of painted a world like, hey, let me show you this. Um, and then, yeah, like it kind of had those a little bit of all of those three elements, you know? We'll be right back with more Hassan Minhaj. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Zell. The recruiter said all I needed to do was send $500 to cover mandatory safety training, and the job was mine. In a world where financial crimes are more and more sophisticated, there's a team that's got your back. Come in, safe squad. We got a 10-3. Copy that, dispatch. We're on it. Hop in, Skip. We got a phony recruiter. Safe squad. The crime drama everyone is talking about. I know it's only my first day, but that sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry job scam. Strap in, rookie. These days, criminals can even make it look like it's your bank calling. But that's where we come in. My what? It's my savings account. Compromised? No, I won't hold. No, I didn't authorize a $12,000 withdrawal. That's my life savings. Why don't you come with me? I'll show you how to report to the FTC. What payment platform did you use? Let's contact them, too. Don't miss the TV event of the season, Safe Squad. Hey, Ace. Yeah, kid. You're right. That was one hell of a first day. Learn how you can spot the signs of a scam so you don't have to call the Safe Squad by visiting www.vox.com slash HQ. Remember, never send money online to people you don't already know and trust. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. And we're back with Hassan Minhaj. I want to talk a little bit about the the comedy in the piece, but I think before we dive deeper into it, I want to ask you this sort of bigger question, which is why have jokes in it? You know, what does comedy do? You know, for a piece like this that is sort of so tragic, you know, what is the role of comedy? You know, what does comedy do? Yeah, man, I think um, it's really interesting. Like I would, I would say when it comes to actually traditional setup punch um i'm not the best setup punch guy i'm actually more of a storyteller i think one of the best one of the best people at setup punch even in late night i think is seth myers he is so good at delivering you know in scripto if you look at a script just like a premise which is one line and then punchline like he is really good at that my strength is a little bit more in doing what what Prashant calls comedy runs, where I build to an idea or a moment, and then we hit it, and then we tag, 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 and I kind of like get really excited, and I kind of spell out this world, and that's really what my strength is. And then also, you know, just 
being authentic and speaking from the heart. You know, I, I don't really have a persona on the show. Um, I don't take the contrarian position. It, it's not like the way as a correspondent, you would sometimes take the comedic contrarian position where it's just like, John, I disagree. I think we all need to be open carry or whatever. And then you're like, let me tell you why. And then you do contrarian, you know, opinion A, B, C, and D, right? That's not, I'm Hassan, I'm just me. Um, And so there were just moments that I just found kind of undeniably weird or funny uh, that just had to make the piece. Like one of our first jokes, which is right around the one minute mark, is Logan Paul talking about race. And I'm just like, okay, how do we not, this is funny. I know this is a very dark episode. We dropped it on June 3rd on YouTube, like on digital platforms. I, I know that it's dark and I know we're in a very heavy place, but this is fucking ridiculous because he literally has a Pokemon on his table while he's talking about race relations in the United States. Like, and then that just created a run, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, do you, uh, I guess the sort of the, the even bigger question is, what does a run like that do for the sort of communication aspect of what you're trying to do? In so much as comedy sort of um, you laugh at a thing or whatever and it's entertainment, but also comedy is a way of facilitating conversation or facilitating communicating what you're trying to say. Yeah. For, for a joke like that or sort of any jokes, how do you see sort of comedy's role in getting a point across what whatever the point maybe even the point of the logan paul example of yeah these are the people who are talking about this right now well well i would say this like you know the way you're describing it at a, at a pretty like high level is is people think that just because if things are sad or tense you cannot make things funny but i would argue some of the funniest things that happen in life sometimes happen during a very very tense or sad moment in your life like mm-hmm. have you ever been like been in a breakup or like you've been in like a really tense argument in public and something ridiculous will happen to cut the tension that's like a setup punch that's happening in real time you know what i mean like it's happening right in front of you you'll you'll like like you'll be in in an argument with your partner or your spouse or whatever and then like the waiter will come up and be like how's the avocado (laughs) toast and you're like get the fuck out of here like that is inherently super funny there's no Mm -hmm. denying that you know um, and I think that's because extreme emotions, whether it's extreme happiness or like silliness or extreme sadness are contain a ton of pressure yeah. and punchlines serve as ways to cut that pressure. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just, it all depends on, uh, where you put it, where, yeah. where it's timed out, you know? Uh, I imagine there was debate about how to sort of portray the rioting and looting aspect of it. You know, the result is a run you do on sort of white angst, which includes a metaphor comparing it to Mad Max and then a simile comparing it to white people kicking uh, karate, kicking cars like their parents just got divorced. Metaphor and simile, I think, are two of your more go to sort of joke constructions. And then the section ends with you looking at the image of Tucker Carlson and and turning his words around on him. That sort of the worst people in society have taken over. Yes. How did that run materialize um how did sort of the approach to that section which is probably sort of the most well i think there's a lot of controversial parts but like how how did you approach that subject in particular which i think the framing of has been really divisive i think probably more than anything else in sort of the last few weeks yes so 
one of the key things that we had to do was actually work with legal. So in, with, with our legal team and our kind of fact check team of established, look, there, there is and there, there was a ton of legitimate protesting. But then the way we got into the looting stuff was, hey, legitimate, peaceful, honest protesting opened the floodgates to random and bizarre shit. And then everything is included in that bucket. Batman showing up, you know, and then and then I just got to see that kind of footage that we were all watching on Twitter of just like white teenage angst at an all time high. And, you know, I, I, I found I find K sounding words to be very funny. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a beautiful way that it came out on the page. Caucasians kicking cars like their parents just got divorced. Just the cuck cuck of it yeah. was really was really funny to me, like just sonically. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, that was that was one of those things where um, you're right. You know, simile and metaphor are super common in in um, in joke. Ten- what are the other forms? I was talking to Prashant about this. What are the other ways you can create jokes besides uh, that's like? Uh, I mean, there's sort of incongruencies. It's hard to sort of think of them. I'm, um, I mean, there's rule of threes. Yeah, uh, isn't so- it, isn't it weird that we have no foundational textbook to comedy? Uh, it's a thing I think about constantly. There, so. But there, there is no algebra, like there is no algebra two trig to that. Do you know what I mean? Of like, yes. of comedy, where it's like, this is undergrad 101. Like the way, like when I was pre-med, there's like, you take chem 101, then you take biochem, then you take bubble, like, you know what I mean? Then you take bio sci, like there's no thing like that. I think arguably my entire career is trying to dedicate to that goal. I think if, if anything, my podcast is sort of like AP learning how to be what comedy works yeah um so but yeah i think it's it's for whatever reason i think because for historically the sort of like cutting up a dead frog of it all people have avoided it but i think by the fact that i'm able to have this show i think people are finally ready to be like how does this work and then yeah so many comedians clearly have thought about it so much that it's like oh this is really interesting so after you play the the clip of the the shoe store owner complaining about how his store is looted, you make a joke how he's selling fake Jordans if they're yes. at those prices. This is one of many references to sneakers and specifically Michael Jordan throughout the piece, yes. which makes sense because you you once joked your comedy is sixty five percent hip hop, seventeen percent hair product, twelve percent mid nineties basketball references, and six percent intense eye contact. But, yes, but but it clearly <laughs> is deliberate, seemingly here to be a touchstone throughout this piece. Why, yeah. why is that? Well, what's interesting here is like there's a tag that was on that joke that – and this, uh, this is actually something I have not told anybody. But sometimes when I'm when I am tackling a third rail issue, I will send the script to what I call some of my just Jedis that know it better than me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm still young in this game and – um, there's just certain people that I send stuff to where I'm like, I respect your wisdom because you've seen things in the, you've seen a lot of these sort of battles happen in real time where there's a high charged moment in American popular culture. And you have this moment where you can napalm the room or you can be you can have a more surgical strike, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've at times like with the correspondence dinner and other things I've sent them, you know, my script to. Neil Brennan, John Mulaney, John Stewart, Steve Bodo, just certain people that I know that like, I can just ask them, what do I do here? Like, there's this line that I'm really struggling with. 
do I go, do I go all the way? And it's so funny. A lot of times people are like in comedy, like there is no, no holds barred. Say whatever the fuck you want. But so much of what we do works within the Overton window, A, and B, like it is, it is about timing and jurisprudence. Our art form actually, I really believe is an incredibly controlled medium. It mm-hmm. feels like, you know, we just, it's Arkham Asylum and we get on stage and, and the inmates get to say whatever they want. But it, it's actually a very refined thing. And um, in regards to the looting stuff, I knew we would get into a very dicey conversation. I ended up sending, me and Prashant ended up sending just that looting chunk to Steve Bodo. Mm-hmm. And Steve Bodo saw that and was like, hey, here's a potential tag you could do on the on the fake Jordans, because those were definitely fake, and the Jumpman was, like, kind of huskier. <laughs> but he goes, hey, come on, who's looting who here? Yeah, And that's, like, a great, like, way to, again, just ease the tension from the situation of, like, well, what are you doing, Hassan? Are you defending looting? And it's like, hey, well, come on, he's selling fake Jays. I mean, who's, who's really looting who? And, like, that was such a great way to be, like, acknowledge what was happening, but then move on to, like, you know what I mean, the next argument. Yeah. The next few minutes, while you're you're talking seemingly directly to the communities you, you you belong to about how they talk about and think about black people in this country and right. how they give nothing back, it's it's like almost entirely jokeless. Were were there jokes considered for that part? Were there were the jokes cut? If so, why? <sighs> yeah. So with that chunk, and and there's a specific word, and, and I, I want to apologize in advance, but I'll just I'll use it. It's important for context. There's these certain moments where um, I've done it on the show where it's like this is an uncomfortable thing that we talk about in the community that we don't really talk about. Mm -hmm. And one of the first times I did that was in our Saudi Arabia episode where I was like, look, everybody who's following this Khashoggi stuff and following this MBS stuff, they they all know their relationship with Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis kind of American politics and and this kind of sexy headline that's happening right now with the murder of a journalist. Muslims, we know what it is. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Like, now that everybody's watching this, we've always known this is the way that country operates. So why are any of us surprised? You know, there's just that moment where you're like, fuck, all right, I'll just say it. And I don't want there to be any kind of punchline to get to mince words here, you know? The same thing happened in my in our affirmative action episode, you know? It just, you know, look, we had all the jokes in it, but there was just a, a very real moment where I'm like, look, to all the Asian people that are suing Harvard, is this really about discrimination or is this about your son not getting into the Ivy League schools? Like, mm-hmm. let's just call it for what it is. And I think comedy gives you the opportunity to have those moments you've kind of earned that with the audience where it's just like, all right, this is how I like really feel jokes aside. Like this is how I really feel. And, um, you can feel it a little bit. Like you can feel your feet going from the shallow end to the deep end. And you can kind of feel your toes leave the floor a little bit. Like, all right, I'm going into a territory where I may lose the audience a little bit, but I, I just gotta be really, really, really straightforward here. And I got to tell you what it is. And, that was in regards to the word galu, which is a word that is used to speak down upon black people. It literally means black, but it is used in a very derogatory word to describe people with darker skin. And again, I didn't have, 
I don't think that 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 section deserves a joke, TK. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of like, look, if you call a dark person in your family Galu and you make fun of them for being Galu, what do you think is going to happen when you watch a dark person with dark skin get killed on camera? If you dehumanize even people in your own family for being darker skinned, how would you feel about someone dying on screen that kind of has darker skin? Will you really see their full human, you know, their full humanity? You probably won't. And I just didn't kind of want to fuck around with jokes there. You know, that was just a moment where I was like, ah, that's not the place, you know? And like, there was another joke that I had in there where I was like, look, Indians, our community, we have given nothing to the black community except our hair. Yeah. And, and, (laughs) and look, like on paper, I love that joke. Like I've seen it like Indians, comma, we have given nothing to the black community, dot, 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 except our hair. Like I love the way it reads. I love it in performance. I can hit it in stride. I even had a bunch of tags on that. Like I remember I did a show with Tiffany Haddish once and and I brought Bina to the show. So Bina's been in the green room with me and Tiffany comes up to Bina and was like, how much? And, and Tiffany, like she'll go anywhere. And I was like, Tiff, for what? Like, like, are you like, you like sex? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? She's like, no, your hair, like you have amazing hair. How much? And I was like, 500, like at least like Bina has great hair. It's like well past her shoulders is very well conditioned. Anyways. There's a there's a, a setup punch and a joke run to be had there. But when you talk about the placement and the momentum of the piece, we're about to get into like qualified immunity and we're about to get into like me, you know, asking Keith Ellison to prosecute. Like it would have it would have kind of taken the piece in this other direction. And I think we always talk about the jokes that people do. And Mm -hmm. especially on this podcast, you talk about the jokes that people do. But I think there's something very interesting in the jokes that you decide to not do. Yeah. Because that's really, that's really important too. Like, and there's a reason why. And it, it actually doesn't come from, I want to pull punches or like, I don't believe in the art form. It's like, no, 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 go there. But like, know when to go there, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's also a matter of thinking about the art form as, also not not telling jokes in so much as like if you define comedy as the art of telling jokes then not telling jokes means what you're doing is not comedy but i think if you just say like if comedy is sort of the art of being a comedian who sort of tells it from whatever their perspective is it it's knowing how to be sort of master of the craft of telling jokes but a real master knows not to do it i mean like and if you look at like Dave, I assume you watched the Dave Chappelle thing. Like I totally. think yeah. maybe there was a half of a punchline in the entire thing, but it makes sense when that's what the time, if that's what's true to you, yeah. then it makes more sense than just doing a joke because you feel like a joke would go here. And, and, and by the way, when you talk about cutting the pressure, even when he does a little, a little tag run on, you know, Candace Owens, stinky pussy, like, he still, do you know what I mean? He can yeah. still play with that a little bit. You know, he can still be, he, he's built up so much tension to be like, no, 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 I still know how to tell jokes, you know? Yeah. You have an exact idea in your head, even if you don't know it, of like exactly how you want to communicate a thing and how you think people will listen to. It. And if there's an audience in front of you, you can be playing with the tension being like, this is, we're at the exact level. I don't want to have a joke and break it. Or if it feels way too tense that literally no one's hearing, hear, hearing you and all they're thinking about is how there hasn't been a joke. Well, then that is a problem. But if it- are you are you into food? Like, I'm yeah. not a foodie. Yeah. Isn't it true how like when when a chef constructs a meal, 
there's certain elements that they put into the meal that that it pulls up the whatever they're like the umami of the mushroom or whatever like we do we do this on purpose we use these particular ingredients in this order to pull up the flavor or intensity of this specific moment yeah i and i think i mean in that metaphor it's also a if you're doing let's say a tasting menu it's a matter of like well, I know there's going to be acid from this part of that course. So this dish maybe needs less acid mm-hmm. than this. Or we don't want to have a really spicy first course because then that will blow out this. I mean, it's it's the same thing of trying to be really in tune with the audience of being like, I you have the ability as a comedian to ha- you have an idea in your head how to best under- convey to them how you think about it. And it's really just through repetition of doing this, you're like, if I do a joke here, for whatever reason, it will be too sweet, hypothetically, right? It's like, oh, it's too sweet. And now they don't take this dish as seriously or whatever, yes. what have you. Totally. I yeah. I, I fully agree. And, and like, there's moments where, an example, another one, you know, like in Chappelle's special, when he talked about when did America ever give a fuck about black America? You want me to give, I'm kind of butchering it a little bit, but you want me to care about, you know, what your, the pronoun is when you change your gender. Look at the way you treated Muhammad Ali when he changed his name. That was like mm-hmm. the rough idea. Agree with him, disagree with him. The, the, when he pulls into that, when he backs into that part of the sentence, the way he is built to that moment, you have to reckon with it where you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's clearly his perspective here. Again, not here to adjudicate if it's right or wrong, but you're like, that's clearly a moment he's trying to pull. You know what yeah. I mean? He's and trying to show you how he thinks about it, regardless of yes. saying it's correct. It's just sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that, to me, is like one of the beauties in in the 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 art form. I've I've always felt, and it's interesting, we get into these arguments sometimes in the writer's room where I'll be... I'll be in rewrite. We'll be about to, we'll be about to go to stage where I'm about to film or even now when I'm like we go from the side of the living room to the green screen where <laughs> a writer's assistant or one a couple of the writers or even Prashant will be like this doesn't make sense the sentence you're saying doesn't read right on paper. And there's times where I'll say listen to me say it. Listen to me say it. So there's per- certain jokes, certain moments where it's just like it reads really well. Like mm-hmm. it it reads flawlessly. And then there's parts where it's a run-on sentence or uh, you you don't know who they is when you're referring to they, right? Like all of those things. And I think about this in a weird way. Oddly, my relationship to jokes like that is the same relationship that I have with Islam where Mm. my my big problem with like zealots and people that take it so literally is they're so obsessed with the form. And what I love about perhaps the Sufi methodology of like, sorry to get really weird about this, but no, like, this is great. <laughs> it is it is more about the soul, the essence of what you're saying, the beauty of what you're saying, which is why singing and poetry and these other beautiful parts, calligraphy of Islamic art that flourished around the world came from that influence. It yeah. wasn't about hard form. And by the way, other religious faiths have that with the Torah and the Talmud where things get very specific and very like according to Aramaic, it's like this and that you lose people. And and some of the things that I love the most are things that just intrinsically speak to the heart. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but it is a very uniquely human thing. And I try to remind myself because I'm such sometimes I get so much in my head and I get so studious about 
this comedy thing that I'm like, you also have to speak like to people in a, to their soul. Like this is an art form. It's yeah, not a homework I, assignment. I mean, I think that sort of underlined there's um, the line that you do include in that part instead, which is sort of that's the great hypocrisy. We love seeing how high a black person can ascend in America, but we have done nothing to raise the floor. Yes. That is still has the it has sort of the rhythm of a joke, but yes. it's not like and I think that's something you, you excel at, which is you use like you have the rhythm of how a person would talk on stage. And you, you want to maintain that. So it's, you still understand that you you have the sort of like um, contr- you f- the the feeling of control of like you're, you're doing this, this is on purpose. And you know, maybe it's not funny, but you still want to have th- that rhythm. Is that sort of how you think of those lines? Or like it's going to it's the point is not to make people laugh, but it's the point of it is still to sort of like get to the point um, acutely and exactly how you want to put it. Yeah, it's almost like it feels like a bar of music you know, where there is a rhythm to it. And if I say it at this tempo and speed, I certainly hope when you when you hear it, and when I'm watching the edit, and I'm watching it, you know, in Avid, and I'm and I'm seeing me deliver the line, I'm like, okay, I certainly hope that's the part that sticks out to the viewer that they go, Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Like, that's the quote, like, I'll remember that I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that back, you know, and um, there's multiple versions where yeah, like, instead of doing the thing about hair, it was that of of just like yeah th- we have contributed nothing and the 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 hypocrisy is is that just because we watch black people ascend and that was again i graduated college during that era watching obama become president was this monumental moment but look we've seen it we we know how high a black person can ascend a uh, a barack obama a jay z yes we get it the conversation that's happening right now, that's happening in the streets. I'm directing this almost at my uncle. Yeah. Do you see why Target had to burn? We've done nothing to lift the floor. It's not about you liking LeBron. You know, it, it was almost yeah. like my do the right thing moment with <laughs> my community. You know, when he goes into the pizza shop and he's like, who's your favorite basketball player? Who's your favorite comedian? That, that whole thing, you yeah. know. The, I, I want to ask you about the, the Keith Ellison part, which yeah. is it's really compelling to be like, this is directly to Keith Ellison. I know you're watching. We know each other. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about doing that? And in general, how you sort of to make sure to, to keep political things personal? So um, it's interesting. Like, again, you know, Keith is one of the a lot of people don't know this. He is a black Muslim, but he is one. He is the first Muslim member of Congress in the United States. And when he became the first Muslim member of Congress, it was, there was actually a lot of controversy around it. And there were a lot of right wing pundits and people that came after him. Uh, he is an activist and, you know, his journey through Islam, uh, you know, he has, it is, it has transformed over different phases of his life, you know, as a black Muslim. And we have met in passing and we have been at the same sort of functions and fundraisers as, and I felt this frustration. I've been at these fundraisers for the Muslim community where we are sitting there and we're praying. We're praying for justice and for peace in Gaza and in Syria and Iraq and all these places that are war-torn across the world and for the, the folks that are incarcerated here in America. Pray for them. And I, and I remember, I'm like, dude, I, can t- I cannot tell you how many of these functions I've sat there with like my hands up towards my face and I'm just kind of like, the list is so long. I'm like, man, we're, we are what we're asking of God is a lot. Like the list is like 50 to 60 different items of tasks that we want to bring peace to. And I was like, I wanted to tell Keith where I'm like, no more prayer. Like the ball is in your court now. And I couldn't believe like 
just the timing of it all. I would have never thought that, again, this place, Minneapolis, who would have thought this place where I've seen Ilhan Omar kind of come into her, her own and shine, but then also see Keith Ellison now get this case. Yeah. There is this seminal moment in our life where I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to see you at another fundraiser where we're praying for the incarcerated people of America or people that are suffering in America. Like, no, 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 no. Like, yeah. let's do this. Game seven, you have the ball. Like, let's go. You know, that's the sort of urgency that I wanted to bring to that moment. And I kind of wanted to paint that picture so people understood that for the first time in a very long time, we have agency in this situation. So let's not let's not lose steam here. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the, the ending when you tell people what they should do very directly. In, in turn, um, I want to ask about the sort of general response, especially from the people who you, who you address directly, because I was especially thinking about your Netflix special, Homecoming King, and that saying that runs through the special, you know, what will people think, which is right. saying, if I do this, what will what will the members of my community think about me? But yeah. also, as your profile has written, it makes me think of the phrase differently, which is, if I do this being your work, what will people think, period? You know, it's more about shaping opinion, you know, with... With both, you're seeing a person, which is you, thinking about how how their actions and how they interact with their community. You know, as you've your life's evolved, as you've now sort of gotten the status in this platform, how has your thinking evolved at being a member of a community and being a a, a person that has a sort of role in it? Um, yeah. How how has that evolved? It's interesting, man, like the uh, the theme of what will people think from, you know, a a, a kind of uh, in Homecoming King came from a somewhat racist perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can't do this because the people in my community wouldn't want me to go to prom with so-and-so, right? Or whatever yeah. that, or it, it, we taught, we discussed kind of like the, the, the beef between Hindus and Muslims, so to speak, right? Um, the... In this case, and what we're seeing right now, a lot of the what will people think that's happening in the conversations that are happening through America are all, almost coming from a defensive position of mm-hmm. like, hey, do I put up the black square or not? What will people think? I don't know where my place in all of this is. And the back part of the, the George Floyd piece to me was, hey, I'm going to give you three or four different ways to look at this issue. You know, like mm-hmm. I know we all have different comfort levels at at the way in which we want to participate in this. Um, and so I, I, I approached it from a knowledge level of like we need to end qualified immunity. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has thrown it out. But that is still important. Right. Number two, at a local level, this buddy buddy relationship between DAs, prosecutors, cops, that's got to go. You can participate locally like in your local elections to make sure that these bad relationships don't continue to fester. Like it was stuff like that. Three, you know, donating your actual time and resources. So many of us come from a a place of privilege where I'm like, look, if you can set up routers, yes, you can do that in commercial real estate, do that in commercial real estate that is black owned. Like we have social equity and capital where we can move the needle a little bit and help folks in ways in which we normally wouldn't, you know? And and I just wanted people thinking about it in that way. Again, the fourth thing, people in my community, we know Keith Ellison. It's like, dude, this guy, he has one of the most monumental 
cases that I think of our of, of my life at least. Because if if these officers go to prison, it will be so different than the death of Eric Garner, right? Where the officers were charged, but they were never sent to prison. And this could could the downstream effects of it would be monumental and historic, you know? And I just yeah. I just want to give people that. Like sometimes we had this joke on the show. <laughs> an alt joke was the show should really be called This Is Why Everything Sucks with Hassan Minhaj. Yeah. Uh but like I wanted to say like, hey, these are different avenues by which, you know, you can you can go about kind of dealing with this issue, you know? Um, you know, speaking to the, the the joke of this is why everything sucks, you know, there there's a line from this episode that remind me of something you talk about a lot, which is when you become an American citizen, you don't just get to own the country's excellence, you have to own its failure. And you, you've talked about as early as after 9-11, realizing there's a certain sort of duality of your thinking about America, about America, where it, it's great for these reasons, while at the same time having all these issues with it. it. It's a matter of loving the country for what it actually is. And, you know, you describe your perspective as being an angry optimist. Yeah. How is how is this the perspective of a ang- of an angry? How is this perspective angrily optimistic? Well, look, like a lot of people that I know hold this position, this very deeply libertarian per- perspective where they're just like, hey, man, don't infringe upon my rights and I won't infringe upon your rights. So don't guilt trip me. Don't get me to sign your waiver or sign your thing outside of Whole Foods. I'm not interested. Like, let me live my life. I got my house in the burbs. I got my car note. I got my family. Like, I don't break the law. Leave me alone. There is no kind of social contract between all of us. And if if there's anything that, is, that has changed all that, it is COVID mm-hmm. and the mask debate. Because whether you like it or not, like, we are all connected and exposed that, whether it was like factory workers to people who deliver your 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 mail and your food, all of those things, essential workers. We talked about it with the meatpacking plants, right? We are all connected. And so this kind of libertarian perspective of like, no, 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 I don't participate in elections. I don't participate. And this is very common even in, in like my own community where we just accept America for its best. Like I love America's Costco. I love the malls. <laughs> I love the big ass freeways. I love fucking SUVs, like all that stuff, right? But you don't get to do that anymore. And this also comes with the contract. And what you're seeing right now, when people are marching in the streets, they're they're talking about America's failures. And guess what? When you signed the lease, that also comes with the property, you know? And that's mm-hmm. the truth of the matter, right? And and it would it wouldn't be any different if if someone immigrated from the States and then went to India, you would have to reckon with the vestiges of not only the British Empire and British colonialism, which ruled India for over three centuries, but then also the vestiges of the caste system as well. That's something yeah. you can't just disregard. It affects everyday life in India. Like So that the same thing applies here with America. So you once said your oxygen as an artist is to do things that scare you. And, and, and in that way, this episode felt like another in a long line of moments in your career. So I'm going to run through specifically some of those moments. I was thinking about when you and Reza Aslan wrote an open letter to the Muslim community telling them that, to support the gay marriage legislation or yeah. the 2016 radio and television correspondence dinner, which was soon after the Pulse nightclub shooting, when you told members of Congress to their face that they should be ashamed they didn't do more. Then the sort of 2017 White House correspondence dinner speech, there are certain episodes of Patriot Act, like the Saudi Arabia episode. This, this made me think about the conversations you've talked about having with your dad once where you know, it's something that we wrestled, which which is 
he was like, why would you become a comedian? You could do so many things and not just like, oh, be a doctor or a lawyer. But like if if these things matter to you, so you could become a civil rights lawyer, you could be a politician, sure. what have you. Yeah, you, you can help people that way. And, you know, you, you sometimes say like maybe he was right, you know, but considering all these things and how do you feel about becoming a comedian now? And how does your dad feel about it as a, a place for your potentials, considering what you have done with it? Um, you know, it's interesting, man. Like, uh, my dad's not wrong because mm -hmm. I, I really do believe, you know, I have friends and, and, and family members that I grew up with that work in the public defender's office and, Every day, their day-to-day -day life is helping keep innocent people from going to prison, like actual rubber meets the road, helping people. And the way in which I help as a public figure and a comedian is a little bit different, man. Like, it gets a little bit murky if you're really going to, you know, check my intentions and who I am. Like, mm -hmm. yes, there are times where I'm speaking up for the right thing, but let's also not get it twisted. I am getting paid to perform at a theater or I'm getting paid to be on TV. So it gets murky and that's where ego and all of that stuff comes into play. And, you know, I'm lucky, like my wife especially keeps that try, you know, she keeps that in check. Like, and we've had a lot of long discussions. And if we want to talk about the theme of what jokes you cut, I can't tell you how many episodes I've also had to kill certain stories because Bina has talked to me and her whole thing is just like, why are you doing that? How much of this is for the gram and for Twitter and because you know it'll trend and you know it's a third rail issue and you know it'll piss off Ben Shapiro or whatever. <laughs> how much of this are you baiting this for the algorithm and how much of this is just you feel it needs to be said? And as a person now who has a wife and two little kids, I got to think about the things that I say because there, there, there are repercussions to that when you, when you do that in a public forum. Yeah. In the weeks since you put out the episode and, and the initial protests, there's there's been a, a reckoning of sorts for for many, both personally and professionally. You know, beyond personal reflections, many prominent institutions, especially journalistic ones, have been addressing years, sometimes decades of of issues. And I think yeah. it's a thing everyone's doing as a, as a person, as a comedian, as a as a boss. Have you reflected and and found things you need to do better that you want to do better? Yeah, I mean that to me is is uh, I think that discussion is really, really important. And, and one of the things that I think about all the time is I remember when I first joined The Daily Show in 2014. And, you know, you can close your eyes and you can imagine that room. It, it's, a, you know, a sea of gingham shirts and Warby Parker glasses. Yeah. And I promised myself, I was like, if I get a show, I'm going to get as many different voices into the room as possible. I want to do that so bad, you know? And I'm really happy to say six years later, it, it's, it's definitely progress from that room that I started with in the fall of 2014 that I walked into. But we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And I think these discussions are really important. A lot of times when we talk about these discussions, and I wish this level of nuance was added, Jesse, like people think about progress as this very binary dichotomy, right? Like mm -hmm. is our writers' rooms or organizations, you know, uh, irredeemably racist and sexist and homophobic and non-inclusive. No. At the same time, are they unequivocally equal and equitable and fair? No. And I think 
what we're trying to do is there's a spectrum and we're trying to get closer and closer to that more equal and equitable thing. And the road to that progress isn't always straight. So mm-hmm. we make steps forward and perhaps a couple times we take steps back and then we make more steps forward. But I, but I think we're taking the right steps forward by having uncomfortable conversations and, 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 and doing that. And one of the things that I was just talking to our staff about is every cycle we have to get better in that regard, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like from an organizational perspective, staff perspective, all of those things. And so I think we're in this really great moment. It feels uncomfortable and I'm watching these conversations happen, but I think it's necessary. Last year, I went to what might have been the most powerful comedy show I've ever been to, which was a tribute to the comedian Kevin Barnett, who unexpectedly yeah. passed away. And Hannibal Burr's performed, Michael Che performed, the Lucas Brothers. And you came on stage and said something, what I found so funny, and which was something like, I don't think Kevin ever, I don't think Kevin ever liked my comedy, probably because I'm so corny. It was something yeah. to that effect, which yes. I imagine is partly about your pension for doing comedy that, say, is politically earnest. Um, yeah. Y- you know, you say you went into this sort of satire because having a take in making political, making the political personal was your superpower. And I, I guess my question is, do you ever think about, um, or, or consider, you know, why is this your superpower? What about your life made that? Made, what about your life was a radioactive spider that resulted in this? <laughs> you know, yeah. or moreover, if your power was dark one-liners like an Anthony Jeselnik, do you feel like what you've decided to do still would be what it is? You know, how much is the artistic drive informing your personal? Or dude, Jesse, your- man, you're like, dude, you're 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 turning this into a, a therapy session, man. <laughs> Yeah, you're 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 t- you're tapping into some deep insecurities, dude. I can't tell you how many times, honestly, man. I'm like, I'm so envious of like Kate McKinnon or like mm-hmm. Che or like some of these other comics that I love that can like go to these really dark places. I was just saying, like, y- y- you know, like, you know, what's really funny is like even behind closed doors, I've sometimes riffed in the green room with Mike Birbiglia or like John Mulaney. And those, those two comics, which are, they're such like, they're such nice guys on stage. They are savage. Like when it comes to actually like writing, like biting jokes, like holy shit, they're really, really fucking good. Prashant has told me something this too. Like it was like, there's some jokes that I'll have that are very like dark. And he's like, dude, you can't smile your way out of that one. Like it'll just sound weird coming out of your mouth. And that's, that's the truth like i think if we all are mutants just each of us we just have different superpowers like we're able to finesse our kind of gift in a different way and that's okay and as as i've gotten older as a comedian i've become more accepting of that where i'm like ah it's a really good joke but that's like a jesselnik joke i could never do it or like (laughs) oh like michelle wolf could totally like she would kill like this joke is so like for her you know yeah um you you tell the story about um, as a little kid, people ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you said white. And you later said, uh, I think you meant ultimately being accepted. Yeah. Considering your position, do you feel accepted in however you define it by America? So it's interesting, man. Like I have achieved something that's kind of rare for my community, which is success, which has gentrified me out of, you know, the masjid and the community that I grew up with. And that doesn't mean that I can share that or scale that. And mm-hmm. that to me is the, that to me is the thing that's still a mind fuck, you know, where, 
you know, I can be at the Time 100 or the Met Gala or whatever those things are that are these exclusive places for kind of quote unquote show business. But that doesn't mean like my cousin Sahil gets to go either. That doesn't mean like my sister can go, you know? And and that's the thing that I think about where I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But that's the real thing that I feel is missing when it, when it can't be shared or Mm -hmm. scaled, then you're just an outlier. That's not particularly great. I mean, it's, it's, it's great for me, but that's not what I feel like is the most important thing, you know? I guess to take it, I mean, looking forward, you know, you talk about how you decided to try comedy as a result of first seeing Chris Rock. But the thing that really convinced you to do it is sort of just seeing the poster for Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, yeah. which told you you can do this. Do you ever yeah. think about the kid who sees a poster or in, probably more likely a banner ad on a website promoting Patriot Act? Like what his comedy would be like? Yeah, I, I can't wait, man. Like I, I was just thinking about this. I remember being this huge hip hop fan growing up and, and hip hop looked a very specific way in the nineties and the early two thousands where it was like, you know, Tupac and Biggie and G unit and 50 cent. It had this very specific persona and to now see someone like Tyler, the creator win a Grammy, like yeah. you, you can have black depressed nerds. Like there's all these like sub versions of what it means to be a rapper and musician, a black rapper and a black musician. Yeah. That's what I can't wait for. Like my community. I've, I have represented it in a certain way. And I think Rami Youssef has elevated and taken mm-hmm. it into a certain direction. And I can't wait for it to get weirder and stranger. And what I'm basically saying, Jesse, is I cannot wait to see like a kid with a blonde wig just like <laughs> going crazy on stage to some like random basic kid doing that. Like I can't yeah. wait f- to see that odd future iteration of what, what kind of we started. <laughs> That sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a, a laughing round. Okay. Uh, great. So do you have a favorite joke joke, street joke, any sort of dad joke, just a short joke? Uh, do I have a favorite? Uh, okay. This is really bad. And it can be bad? Yes. They're almost always bad. Okay. So this is awful, but this is what I do whenever I'm on a plane and someone's like, what do you do? I'm a comedian. All right. Tell me a joke. <sighs> Panda walks into a bar. You've heard this one, right? I keep on going. I feel like I probably did. All right. Panda walks into a bar. He orders some food, right? And then the uh, the the bartender gives him the bill. He walks away from the food and the drinks. He gets to the door. And the bartender goes, hey, man, what are you doing? Panda Bear goes, I'm leaving. And he goes, you can't leave. You got to pay me right now. Pulls out a gun, fires two shots into the air, and he's about to walk out the door. And he goes, are you fucking crazy? I'm going to call the cops right now. The panda bear goes, look it up. He chucks an encyclopedia book at him. Bartender opens up the book and it says panda bear. Eats, shoots, and leaves. I actually have not heard that one. That one it's is really a, bad. It's an incredibly really, really long bad. walk for a very small It's a, it's, a, it's such a long walk for a very mediocre yeah. punchline. However, it's what, what, what it does is that if, if you're sitting next to somebody on a flight, it has enough real estate in it that mm. they feel like you've talked to them and you haven't brushed them off. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, and then they're like, I don't want to hear another joke. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it's so bad that it's like, 
All right, no, no more jokes needed. <laughs> um, do you have a a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal, um, or you saw it and you're like, I wish that joke was mine? You know, no one would think you stole it. It's sort of a, another dimension where everything's exactly the same, but you have this one joke from this other comedian. I love one of my favorite jokes is actually from the Comeback Kid, and it's a story. It's the story that John Mulaney talk where he talks about his. Uh, his mom meeting Bill Clinton. Sure. And it builds to this perfect moment where he says, because Bill Clinton never forgets a bitch. It's like yeah. so great. Because to me, what's what I love the most about it is that it's 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 a long story. It's a detailed story. He also gets to use the word bitch, you know, mm. which is so not in his persona, but it's so perfect for that moment. It's great. It's just the best. And I'm like, ah, I love that. It hits on all these different levels. And I'm like, I want to be able to tell stories like that. So it's, it's a joke that I've, I've and a story that I, I still love and I still like love rewatching. Um, what are your favorite and least favorite Jordans? Uh, favorite Jordan of all time is probably like the Jordan 11, the Jordan 1, and the Jordan 3. Least favorite. I mean, there's some ugly ones in there, but I would say the Jordan 10 is pretty hideous, which is the baseball years. Yeah, pretty, pretty ugly. Feels appropriate. Um, if you were a musician or a, a band, what would you be? Do you feel like is there's a music music equivalent to the sort of thing that you do? Uh, the I, I don't I, I don't know if I could say what I'm the equivalent of, but I would say the thing that I would aspire to is um, I love like the bands and the musicians that feel timeless that you're still mm-hmm. going to go see them. I remember being at The Daily Show, John loved Bruce Springsteen, and then seeing like different writers that also love Bruce Springsteen. Like Trayvon Free also loved Bruce Springsteen. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, like that's such a, a very cool thing, you know, or like Prince where irrespective of like where you were uh, at in like life, people still were like, do you want to go see Prince do this residency here? And we, we're going to go see see him live and i don't know that that's Mm -hmm. something i've always aspired to i remember talking to roy wood jr about this and in terms of like a comedian that i thought was so cool and and roy said this and i just like it really stuck with me is he was like i love how that when dick gregory died he still had dates on the books yeah like he still had events up on his website and like that's such a beautiful way to look at comedy and a comedy Mm -hmm. career um do you have a a joke that you thought was so funny that you tried over and over again and never worked. You you me- messed with it and it still didn't work, but you will go to your grave being like, I was funny and the audience was wrong. Um, there's been this joke that there's been this tag that I've always tried to do. So I'll do all these like panels and sometimes they'll, well, it, it'll be, it'll be less specific than this, but it will be like, can you make a joke about anything? And I've, and I've had to talk about in depth about like, Yes, anybody can make a joke about anything, but it depends on who it is and depends on what the joke, blah, 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 right? And I always say where I'm like, you can always napalm the room, but sometimes you have to have like a surgical strike. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a drone strike, you know, like an Obama drone strike mm-hmm. where you, you try to hit the target, but then you accidentally hit a, a girl's school. And, and Prashant's like, don't say that. Do not do the tag with drone striking a girl's, a girl's school. And I'm like, but, but what if he, it's on accident? And he's like, no, the joke will not land. <laughs> It's a joke that I'm still I'm still trying to land this Obama drone strike joke, but I, I still haven't found the perfect wording for it. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. That's it for another episode of Good One. 
you can watch Patriot Act on Netflix. Follow Hassan on social media at Hassan Minhaj. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. God from Shikachin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with A.D. Bryant. Have a good one. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.